Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. I want to begin this morning by um, setting forward uh, a sort of theory. Um, Call it a theory or a philosophy about an important part of the human experience, okay? It's not the most important part of the human experience, but I think that it still matters. And you might even call it, if you're inclined to this kind of language, a theology, okay? I want to start by establishing a, a theory or a philosophy of sandwiches, A theory of sandwiches, okay? Like I said, not the most important part of the human experience, but I think that it still matters. All right, let's say that I take a couple of slices of delicious Team Rose sourdough bread, all right? And I put uh, some mustard and mayonnaise, a slice of lettuce and tomato, maybe some cheese on there, and then I put a big serving of turkey, right? What do you call the sandwich that I've just made? You call it a turkey sandwich, right? Even though objectively the team rose bread is the best thing about that sandwich. Generally speaking, we name a sandwich after the meat that is in the middle of it. Okay, now have you heard of a compliment sandwich? You know what a compliment sandwich is? A compliment sandwich is when you want to give somebody some feedback, maybe some constructive criticism, and so you put a compliment on either side of it uh, and put the uh, kind of the, 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 the criticism in the middle, right? And so you might say something like, man, those pants look really really good on you. They, they fit you so well. By the way, your fly was open during the entirety of that 20-minute presentation. Anyway, the plants look great and you're great. Okay, I'll see you later. Bye, right? Um, that is a, a compliment sandwich. But you realize that according to our working theory of sandwiches, it should really be called a criticism sandwich, right? The compliments are just the bread on the outside and it's the, the criticism that's the meat and the purpose of what you're saying in the middle. It's a criticism sandwich or an insult sandwich, right? Now, why? are we talking about sandwiches, right? Well, because they're delicious, yes, but also because Mark loves sandwiches, okay? Now, I like to imagine that that was literally true. I like to think about Mark uh, eating a, a delicious fish sandwich with his disciple buddies, but it is definitely literarily true. All throughout the book of Mark, all throughout this biography that Mark has written about Jesus, he loves to serve us literary sandwiches, What I mean by that is that he'll start to tell a certain story about Jesus, and then in the middle of that story, he will insert another story, a story within a story. And it's usually a shorter, seemingly simpler story between the two parts of a larger narrative, but it is actually in that middle portion that we find the meat, that we find the meaning. It's the middle story that gives meaning to the entirety of the narrative. And it's actually in the middle that we find the tasty truth of the whole sandwich. And it helps us to understand the surrounding story. And that's exactly what happens in our passage this morning. According to our theory of sandwiches, this passage should be called a Holy Spirit sandwich. A Holy Spirit sandwich. At the heart of the passage, Jesus tells us how much we need the Holy Spirit, and what a wonderful gift the Spirit of God is to God's people. That is the central truth. And then the bread on the outside, he shows us how to love 
difficult family members. And actually what he's saying here is that until you understand that central part, your need for the Holy Spirit, you won't be able to love difficult family members the way that I'm calling you to love difficult family. Okay, so we'll start from the inside this morning and work our way out. Two points, why we need the Holy Spirit and two, how to love difficult family. Okay, before we jump in, let me pray for us. Lord, we do pray that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word. We need your Holy Spirit to help us to understand this passage and to transform us by this passage. We need your spirit to help us to digest the truth of this passage such that it brings us back to Jesus, gives us new hope in Jesus, and begins to transform our lives. And so that's our prayer, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, first of all, what's happening in the middle part of this story, verses 22 through 30, okay? Jesus is continuing his ministry in Galilee and the surrounding region, and he's proclaiming the gospel, he's healing people, and he's casting out demons. And that's drawing an ever-increasing crowd, okay? And what we've seen over the last few weeks is that Jesus' main opponents, the scribes and the Pharisees, we might call them the religious experts and the ethical elites, the scribes and the Pharisees have become increasingly hostile toward Jesus and what he's doing. Their approach to confronting Jesus used to be to ask questions, and they weren't necessarily genuine questions. They didn't seem to be questions of an open and curious heart. They were more like leading questions and critical questions, but at least there was some modicum of restraint in that approach to Jesus. But the problem is that whenever Jesus answers their questions, they don't like the answers that he gives because he often breaks their comfortable religious categories. Right? He challenges their previously held biases and he doesn't fit the mold of the Messiah that they had expected. Maybe most unsettlingly, he keeps saying, I didn't come to quarantine with the righteous. Right? I didn't come to hole up with the pure people, I came to seek out and to serve and to save sinners. He says, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick, and I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call, to pursue, to love, to save serious sinners. And therefore, you don't really know me until you know yourself to be a major sinner in need of major mercy. And the Pharisees absolutely hate that. And so they begin to take a more aggressive approach to opposing Jesus. Mark 3, verse 6 that we looked at a few weeks ago tells us that behind the scenes, they begin to plot how they might kill him. And now this passage this morning says that in public, they begin to try to undermine Jesus' ministry with insults and lies. And they're saying, he is demon-possessed himself. They're saying, you know why he's so good at casting out demons? Because he is a demon. He's friends with the demons. And look at how Jesus responds to them. He says, guys, what you're saying doesn't even make sense. Right? How can Satan cast out Satan if a kingdom is divided against itself? That kingdom can't stand. You're being illogical. You're talking nonsense. Do you see that your opposition to me has led you to the most extreme folly? And then he issues a warning. And it might be one of the most challenging things that Jesus ever says. It's this unusual little section of this passage. Verse 28, he says, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit 
never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And before the, ser- the first service, one of our women's shepherding team members, Sarah Ingalls, said, I hope that when people hear that verse, they think of like the gentle and gracious Jesus in the chosen TV show, right? And I hope that you do, as you hear that verse, that saying of Jesus in verse 28, I do hope that you keep in mind all of the gentleness and the graciousness about Jesus that we have talked about before. But I think that he is trying to shock us with that statement, right? He's saying a serious thing. Jesus warns all sorts of sins, no matter how awful, can and will be forgiven, but blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is a sin with eternal consequences. That verb blaspheme there means to resist and to reject, to push back against the Holy Spirit's truth and work, and to call what is good evil. Jesus is saying the most dangerous, the most deadly thing that a person can do is to resist and reject the spirit of God. Now, there are two ways that we could misunderstand what's happening here, okay? And the first, firstly, this passage, along with the corresponding stories in Matthew 12 and Luke 12, are the origin of what is sometimes called the unforgivable sin, And so if you've been around kind of the church for a little while, you may have heard there's only one unforgivable sin, and here it is, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. If you grew up in like a a slightly traumatizing Sunday school context the way that I did, right, you may have even heard this kind of thrown out by one of the other kids as like a a terrifying tidbit of Bible trivia, right? (laughs) What is the one and only unforgivable sin, Wearing a two-piece swimsuit to youth group lake day? (laughs) No. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. (gasps) What does that mean? (laughs) The wrong idea that we might get is that God is up in heaven watching, right? And if you do this one thing, even just one time, boom, you're done. You're out. You're as good as dead. Okay, so let's just say loud and clear, if you've heard some of those misconceptions about this passage, that is absolutely not what Jesus is saying here. Okay, what Jesus is referring to is an ongoing condition, a a progressive, continuous resistance that finally leads to an outright rejection of the Holy Spirit. And that points to the second misunderstanding that we could have about these verses. And this one is more subtle, but it's actually, it's much more important for us to get clear about, okay? Our misunderstanding about the unforgivable sin, quote unquote, might be rooted in a more fundamental misunderstanding about our own default disposition toward God. I think that most of us in sort of our natural thinking and our natural disposition, we think overall I'm pretty receptive to the work that God is doing in my life. I'm I'm aware and I'm open to what he's doing and generally speaking I go along with it willingly enough. In other words, we might begin to think I was a pretty likely candidate for this whole Christian life thing. And with a little help, I I can do it pretty well. But what if the exact opposite was the truth? What if you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and the only way that you came alive and became aware of Jesus in the first place was by a miraculous act of the Holy Spirit? And in fact, that's exactly what the Bible says is true. It's what we call regeneration. You were dead wrong in relation to God and the spirit made you alive to Jesus, made you hear the gospel for the first time and come to the cross to receive forgiveness for sins. 
Or what if you are more, and keep your mind open to this possibility, what if you are much naturally much more resistant to the work that God is doing in your life than you realize, and the only way that you ever change is by the miraculous work of the Spirit bringing you back, sometimes kicking and screaming, over and over and over again to Jesus? What if the truest definition of Christian maturity is how readily you are willing to admit, I am a much bigger sinner than I previously realized? I need Jesus far more than I knew. And his grace is more abundant than I ever imagined. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is so much more. Where sin increases, grace abounds. And again, that's exactly what the Bible says is true, and it's what we call sanctification. We're desperate for the Holy Spirit to bring us back to Jesus again and again and again for healing and renewed living and hope. And if that's true, then we can't possibly think, I'm doing pretty well on my own, and as long as I don't accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit, I'll be okay, (laughs) right? Instead, we realize I am desperate for the Spirit's rescue and transformative power every day, every single moment of the rest of my life. And when I'm really believing that, it makes me much freer and much more vulnerable to confess my sin to God and to other people. And it it gives me a healthy fear and a healthy defense, an antibody to the most dangerous sin. Jesus calls it the leaven of the Pharisees, creeping, insidious independence, self-righteousness. So I think the middle portion of this passage has something to say to three different sorts of people in the room this morning. Every one of us is one of these three people. There are some of you here who haven't put your faith in Jesus and really you haven't ever felt the need to. You haven't felt inclined to do so. You don't see why you need Jesus. And if if that happens to be you and you're here this morning, we wanna say we're glad that you're here and thanks for being honest about that. But what this passage is telling you is that what you need is not primarily a new piece of information or a proof about Jesus. You need to encounter the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a real living person and you need him to wake you up to your need for Jesus. And so do you have the spiritual integrity to run this experiment? Okay, even if you run it privately and never tell anyone, can you pray, Spirit, if you're real, if you're there, Show me why I need Jesus. And the way that he does that, by the way, is not usually through some like warming of the bosom or like a liver quiver, you know, like some emotional feeling. Usually what he starts to do is he starts to show you that you are a sinner. He starts to show you particular and specific sins and he shows you how Jesus is the only non-arbitrary source of the big, beautiful mercy that you need. Now some others in the room are already in that place. You're already there, you know it, and really for the last few weeks or months or years, you've known it. The Holy Spirit has been showing you your need for a savior, and this passage is saying to you, don't resist the Spirit any longer. Don't do what the scribes and Pharisees did and call something good evil. The Spirit is making you aware of the true nature of things, and that can be painful because it requires a surrender, a self-forsaking, a conviction, and a confession. It's painful, but it's good. It's true. The Spirit wants to bring you to Jesus to find mercy and life. Don't resist and reject him for a moment longer. 
Now, third group of people I wanna talk to is those of us who call ourselves Christian, but first of all, you should recognize if you are a Christian, you were previously in both of those other two categories and it's only by the Holy Spirit that you've come to faith in Jesus, okay? But if, if, you call, if you identify as a follower of Jesus, this passage is reminding you that one of the primary characteristics of life with Jesus will be regular conviction and correction and maybe even a few criticism sandwiches. For me, this passage is a reminder that Jesus loves me so much, that the Holy Spirit loves me so much that he is always bringing influences into my life Brothers and sisters in Christ, my wife, pastors and elders and church leaders, community group members and friends, a certain passage of the Bible or a certain sermon that I hear to say things like, Trip, do you think that you might be a much angrier person than you realize? Do you know how prideful you can be? That hurts to hear, right? Do you know that you can exude a certain coldness and callousness toward people in certain contexts. Do you realize how unattuned you are to what is going on inside your own heart? In short, do you think that you might be a bigger sinner than you previously realized? And do you know what I do, you know what I want to do and, and do very often when people come and they say things to me like that? I say, all right, that's not true. Leave, leave me alone, I'm not that bad, I'm, I'm doing pretty well on my own, right? I'm like, I'm like Christian Roy Kent. I say, no, no, go away, right? Holy Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, have mercy on me. Save me from myself, right? That pursuit, that conviction is evidence that the Spirit loves me and is working on me and he won't give up on transforming me into the very likeness of Jesus, and if you find that in your life as a follower of Jesus, when conviction and criticism come, your most common response is to resist and reject, that's a dangerous place to be. But if you can reframe your thinking to, that is one of the foremost evidences that the Spirit loves me and won't give up on me and is working on me, then that is where true transformation is found. That's what the meat of this passage is about. Okay, how desperately we need the Holy Spirit. You needed the Spirit in the first to raise you from the dead and you still need him today to bring you back to Jesus over and over again. And often he uses the people around you to do that, okay? Now I think that maybe I've been framing that mostly in the negative, right? Negative is not the, quite the right word, but like talking about things like conviction and correction and criticism and, and the pain that comes along with that. But let me put it more positively, okay? Another way of thinking about this is the Holy Spirit is rediscipling you into the family of God. Right? He's transforming you to live as a citizen of the kingdom, yes, but even more than that, to live as a son or a daughter of the king. Right? Romans 8.15 calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of adoption. Right? From all eternity, think about this. I mean, we can't, you can't wrap your mind around it, but try to, right? From all eternity, the Father has been loving and enjoying the Son. And the Son has been loving and enjoying the Father and the Holy Spirit has been dancing back and forth between them in infinite love and joy. And now Jesus dispatches that same Spirit to be the Spirit of adoption that brings you into the family of infinite love and joy. 
the Father is your Father. Jesus is your brother. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption, the family spirit enfolding you into God and you get relationship and adventure with God forever. We desperately need the Holy Spirit and the Spirit is a wonderful gift of God with us, God in us, and us drawn into the triune family forever. Okay, now with that in mind, we can zoom out to the bread of the sandwich, to the outer narrative. And not a moment too soon. Okay, just in time for Thanksgiving, just in time for the holidays, how to love difficult family. Tolstoy said in the first line of Anna Karenina, every happy family is alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own unique way. And that's true of your family, and it's true of my family, and it was was true of Jesus' family. So Merry Christmas, right? (laughs) Verse 21, as Jesus continues his ministry, it says that his biological family comes and they try to seize him or they try to restrain him. And what that word there literally means is they try to take control of him. And they're even saying he's out of his mind. He's gone crazy. So which is worse to say about Jesus? He's demon-possessed or he's out of his mind? Neither one is great, all right? And some of you know what it's like to come to faith in Jesus and to have him begin to transform the way that you think and live and relate and for your biological family to say she's out of her mind. We don't know what's gotten into him. The Holy Spirit does something good in you and your family calls it bad. Further down, verse 31, it says that Jesus' family is standing outside. That is important. They're standing outside demanding that he come out and explain himself. What are you doing, Jesus? This isn't how we raised you, son. We're from a good, respectable family, and don't you know, family comes first. Have you ever noticed, by the way, that at Christmas time, the one permissible idol, and in fact, the most promoted idol, is family? Every single Christmas movie, right? At some point, the motto, the, 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 the sort of moral at the end is, Cindy Lou, don't you know that it's not about presence and material things? It's about family, right? Not necessarily this specific family that's been terrible to each other for the entirety of this movie, but family, Cindy Lou, right? But look how Jesus defines true family. This is, it was shocking when he said it then, and it's shocking to us now, And it's good, right? He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Here they are sitting in a circle at my feet. Whoever does the will of God, that's my brother, my mother, my sister. When the Holy Spirit starts to change you, what will happen is that you'll go from standing outside making assumptions and accusations about Jesus to sitting in a circle at his feet, dependent, expectant, humble and hopeful with Jesus. By the way, what do we call a group of people that sit together at the, foot, at the feet of Jesus? We call it a church, right? He's made us brothers and sisters. We shouldn't take this story to mean that Jesus doesn't care about families. Okay, elsewhere in the Gospels, it is very clear that he deeply loves his mother and his brothers. 
And in general, the Bible teaches that Christians ought to love and honor their biological families. But what this passage is telling us is when God's spirit of adoption lives in you, it will change the way that you relate to your family of origin. When I was in sixth grade, in gym class, there was a dance unit. We had like three weeks learning different dances. Okay, I thought, and I thought this was a normal thing. By the way, I, I went to public school growing up. I thought this was a normal thing, and I've since talked to other people who said, that, that, no, dude, that's not normal. That's weird, right? But in Wake County Public School, sixth grade gym, there, you got dance lessons, and I hated it, right? I hated it. Kids were doing the wrong moves. A lot of kids had two left feet, myself included. Boys sometimes were like wrestling and fist fighting in the corner. Like people were dancing inappropriately, like early variations of twerking or something like that, you know? Like, and I know, by the way, that Matt has been up here kind of speaking. He's been advocating for public schools the last few weeks. But in my public school in sixth grade, they put the sex ed unit and the dance unit back to back in gym class, you know? So it's not all kind of rosy over there, I guess. But um, <laughs> as far as I can remember... A few kids liked the dance unit. Most of us hated it, and none of us were particularly good dancers. But when I was a senior in college, I took a ballroom dance elective, and I loved it. All of a sudden, we were really dancing, dancing with a group of people who had chosen to be there, and dancing under a great instructor. And to this day, my wife and I love to dance at weddings, and we love to watch Dancing with the Stars. And if you have the spirit of God dwelling in you, then you are now dancing with the stars. Which is the truer and more original and more lasting definition of dance? Sixth grade gym class or dancing with the stars? So think about this. Because the father, son, and spirit are the original family, a family of infinite love from eternity past, and because they're a family that you have been drawn into for all eternity future, that means that the family that you grew up in was something like sixth grade dance. But the family that you have been adopted into is dancing with the stars. And some of us had families that danced okay and kind of, you know, pretty happy. Some of us had families where people are fist fighting in the corner and terrible dancers, right? But your first family was only the training ground for the eternal family that you are meant to dance with forever. Now, here's where the metaphor breaks down. On Dancing with the Stars, if you're a bad dancer, you get kicked off the show. But in this family that we've been adopted into, if you're a bad dancer, you get to keep dancing, right? And you get to invite other people to come and join you, including your family of origin, including your biological family. And in fact, the truest and most lasting way to love your family here on earth is to point them toward God and the local church as their ultimate family. Jesus says, who are my brothers and my sisters, the people sitting in a circle at my feet, the church? What if this holiday season, before spending time with your family, you made it a priority to take some extra time in quiet communion with your forever family, the divine family? said, Father, let me experience your love. Jesus, be my brother. Be my high priest, my helper, my friend. Like, Holy Spirit, fill me up before Thanksgiving dinner. And what if you made it a priority to pray with and for your church family? If you took your community group or a couple of close brothers and sisters in Christ 
and you prayed for one another that you would love your biological family well this holiday season. I think what would happen is we'd find ourselves being the first repenters, the first confessors, the, the foremost sinners, and the first forgivers when we spend time with our family, even knowing that that might not go well. Right? Both asking for and extending mercy to difficult family because we're so sure of the mercy that we've received in Jesus, the love that we have from God. And I think we'd also be more courageous to speak the truth in love and even to courageously confront sin in our families when it's appropriate to do so. Now the question is, how do you know when to do which one? How do you know when to courageously confront sin or to extend gentle mercy? And the answer is, you don't know. I don't know. We're not good at it and we mess up all the time, but the Holy Spirit does know. And the Spirit lives in you and the Spirit loves you and is discipling you into the family of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through your word, the Bible, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the story of Jesus and the truth that Jesus knew what it was like to grow up in a challenging family. And we thank you for this promise of the gift of your Holy Spirit. And we do pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you'd give us wisdom, that you'd give us humility, that you would teach us to repent and confess our sins by the power of your Holy Spirit, and you would teach us to hope and rejoice in the dance that we've been drawn into and the infinite life that we have with you. And even this holiday season, would you give us little glimpses of what it looks like to tell other members of our family about that, to point family members that we love to Jesus, even when it's hard to do so. We pray in his name. Amen.